Well, I invite you to take the Bible this morning and turn with me to the book of Job. Job chapter 1, right before the book of Psalms. And while you're turning, I want to take just a moment to say thank you to Pastor Mark. We've been going through difficult, challenging, unprecedented times. I've been in ministry about 40 years now. I've never seen anything like this. And Pastor Mark has given us strong, steady leadership. He is a good shepherd. And so I want us to take a moment right now. You may be watching and worshiping with us at home. You're the only person in the room. But I want us to take a moment. Let's express our appreciation to Pastor Mark. We appreciate you so, so much. The title of the message this morning is, When Disappointment Comes. When Disappointment Comes. And as we've been going through COVID together, I think we've all experienced disappointments in one way or another. Some have been disappointed physically with your health, and others, maybe you've been disappointed relationally. You haven't been able to be as close to your family and friends as you would like to be. And for others, maybe there's been financial disappointment. I have to say, when the governor made his announcement, made his statement on Monday, I was disappointed. I was. I went out to the parking lot to get into my car, and there was a staff person from uh, Growing Tree Preschool getting in her car at the same time. So we engaged in a little bit of conversation, and we talked about COVID. And she said, you know, my son is in the Air Force, and one of their mottos is adapt and overcome. And I said, thank you very much for that. I needed that encouragement right now. And as we go through disappointment, we can grab a hold of that motto, but, but I would add a little phrase to the end, adapt and overcome in the strength that the Lord supplies. Well, we're going to look at the book of Job, and we don't have time to touch on every chapter, obviously, but here's the key concept. Here, here's the key concept. When testing comes, when you're going through disappointment, when you're experiencing suffering, humble yourself and worship God. Humble yourself and worship God. We all love stories, don't we? But we like them to have the proper ending. We want the good guys to win and the bad guys to lose. We can handle any pain, tragedy, or loss as long as justice prevails in the end. We prefer fairy tale endings. For example, Cinderella, this charming young woman, was raised by her wicked stepmother and her hateful stepsisters, and then she miraculously has this opportunity to go to the royal ball. She meets the handsome prince, of course. And, and there's chemistry between it. There are sparks going off. But at the stroke of midnight, her coach turns back into a pumpkin and her beautiful gown back into her old shabby clothes. But we could handle that tragedy 
because she had been warned that that, that would happen, and, and we knew that eventually, eventually she would get the glass slipper, marry the handsome prince, and live happily ever after. I don't know what I would have done had one of her hateful stepsister's feet fit that glass slipper. I don't know if I could have handled that. We want stories to end well. We long for fairness and justice to rule. So what do we do when that expectation is not met? And how do we deal with the disappointment and disillusionment when things turn out poorly? How do we relate to God at a time like that? Well, this morning I want to take you through some verses in the book of Job and then make some observations from Job's life and how he handled a suffering. But keep in mind that we are all faced with some great opportunities brilliantly disguised as unsolvable problems. Now this morning, there are some of you who are facing what you could easily call an unsolvable problem. The problem, humanly speaking, appears to have no solution. And perhaps it doesn't. There's no end in view. It has all the, the earmarks of an impossible situation. Now, my experience in situations like that is that God does His greatest work in those situations. Well, notice, if you have your Bible open, in Job chapters 1 and 2, you have five scenes before you, and they shift back and forth, earth to heaven, earth to heaven, and back to earth. We'll pick it up with the second scene, beginning in verse 6. The first scene I'm not going to read. It's simply a review of of Job's home and his family life. So look at verse 6 as the scene shifts to heaven. And it's an incredible scene. Verse 6. One day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? And Satan answered the Lord from roaming through the earth and going back and forth in it. And then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? Have you taken note of my servant? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns shuns evil. Now stop right there for a moment. I wonder what God would say about me. I wonder what God would say about you if he were to address Satan and tell him about your life. Have you considered, and he calls out your name, and then he describes you. I wonder what, it would, what he would say. It might fit well with what he said about Job, a choice servant of mine. Now here's how Satan responded. We pick it up again, verse 9. Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hand so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, very well then, Everything he has is in your hands, but on the man himself, 
do not lay a finger. And then Satan departed from the presence of the Lord. And I might add, without being overly dramatic, there began the the, the greatest, most unprecedented satanic attack any person on this earth has ever experienced. From the portals of heaven, Satan departed and he landed on Job with both feet. And to get the, the full impact of these next verses, we need to hear them. And we need to read them. So follow along with me, verse 13. One day, when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing, and the donkeys were grazing nearby, and the Sabaeans attacked and carried them off. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The fire of God fell from the sky and burned up the sheep and the servants, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and swept down on your camels and carried them off. They put the servants to the sword, and I I am the only one who has escaped to death. While he was still speaking, yet another messenger came and said, Your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house when suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on them, and they are dead. And I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. Now, as I read it that way, and that must have been how it happened, I mean one blow after another blow after another blow after another blow before Job could even catch his his breath or absorb the shock, another axe fell. And frankly, I cannot imagine the plight of Job. I've never known that kind of tragedy or calamity. And neither have most of you. I've not entered into those depths of misery. And how does he respond? What does he say to God? While he was still staggering under the loss of everything, home and family included, seven sons and three daughters. It's an amazing response in verse 20. It's a response of worship. It says, Job arose. You see, after receiving one report after another and losing all ten of his children, he must have just sat down. Maybe his legs collapsed and wouldn't even hold up his weight. He just sat down and big sigh. And after he got it all together in his head, it says he arose and tore his robe, which really describes the tearing of his soul. He just ripped his garments and shaved his head as if he were saying to himself and to others, I have lost everything. And in his utter humility, he fell to the ground, slumped to his knees, fell prostrate on his face, and he worshiped. It says he fell to the ground and he worshiped. Did you get that? You would expect it to say he fell to the ground and he begged God for mercy. Or he fell to the ground and he pounded his fist in the ground and said, why? But he didn't. He fell to the ground and worshiped. Meredith George Klein 
taught Old Testament at Westminster Seminary. He wrote about Job. Behold the wise man Job, not wise because he comprehended the mystery of his sufferings, but because while not comprehending it, he worshiped God still. In other words, not being able to answer why, he nonetheless worshiped. You see, worship doesn't come as a result of getting all the answers. It comes on the edge of having no answers and saying, God, I adore you still. I praise you in spite of my ignorance and lack of comprehension. And I wonder if you, in the midst of your testing, in the midst of your suffering, if you've taken time out to express that that gesture of adoration, to say, Lord, I adore you more than I ever have in my life as I go through this impossible predicament. He worshiped God in humility. And look at verse 21. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. In other words, I brought nothing into this world with me, and I'll take nothing with me when I go. And notice, he didn't need things to worship. You know, Job had abandoned himself to God, and he says in verse 21, The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. You see, real love doesn't need the trappings of things in order to sustain it. Your love for your wife or husband or parents or your children, it doesn't require things. It goes right on. I remember a a devastating mudslide a number of years ago, and one of the networks did a documentary on it that I watched. They interviewed one distressed woman, and she looked directly into the lens of the camera And she said, we have lost everything. We have nothing left to live for. It was so heartbreaking to watch. But tell me, put yourself in Job's place this morning. Would you lose everything if you lost all of your things? Or would that maybe be the beginning of finding yourself? Well, Job's story does not end there. We find a second test in chapter 2, verse 7. This this is the fifth scene. We're back on earth. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and afflicted Job with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the top of his head. Then Job took a piece of broken pottery and scraped it himself with it as he sat among the ashes. His wife said to him, "Are, Are you still holding on to your integrity? Curse God and die. He replied, You are talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? In all this, Job did not sin in what he said. That's a summary statement similar to the summary statement back in chapter 1, verse uh, 22, where it says, In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. So Job lost his final consolation. I've heard people going through suffering say, well, at least I still have my health. Job lost his health. And overnight, the greatest man in all the East became the most pitiable. 
And what was, what was the exact nature of his afflictions? Well, look again at verse 8, chapter 2. It describes intense itching. He was sitting alone in silence, digging away at those ulcer-like sores with a piece of pottery. Now turn over to chapter 7, chapter 7, verse 4, and we get more insight into his suffering. Verse 4, when I lie down, I think, how long before I get up? The night drags on, and I toss and turn till dawn. So there's insomnia along with that terrible itching. Verse 5, my body is clothed with worms and scabs. And some believe actual worms of the body, such as maggots, were present. He continues, my skin is broken and festering. My days are, are swifter than a weaver's shuttle. And they come to an end without hope. And then drop down to verse 14. Even then, you frighten me with dreams and terrify me with visions. And that, that's no laughing matter if you've ever been plagued by nightmares. Now, can you imagine the itching, the pain, the running sores, the worms, the insomnia, and when sleep did come, it was disturbed, interrupted by nightmares. Now, chapter 30 tells us even more. Chapter 30, verse 17, night pierces my bones. Satan said he would touch his flesh and bones. My gnawing pains never rest. Now just imagine that. And then down in verse 30, chapter 30, my skin grows black and peels. My body burns with fever. Now, I'm not a doctor or a nurse. If I had more medical knowledge, I think I'd be able to enter even more deeply into Job's afflictions. Raging fever, tossing and turning nights, heaped on top of the pain and the running sores. And then one more thing, one more thing, back in chapter 19, verse 17. And maybe, maybe you've never noticed this in the book of Job, but it's one more symptom. Chapter 19, verse 17. My breath is offensive to my wife. And he couldn't even get close to his wife because the stench of death was on his breath. I wrap all that together, and you can appreciate the silence that, that, that Job was experiencing in chapter 2. But no clenched fist shaking it in the face of God and saying, how dare you touch me in my righteous condition. No, he just sat silently in the heap with no hair, body racked with pain, scratching away at those sores. That's misery. Now enter Job's three friends and later Elihu. The three friends make their appearance in chapter 2, verse 11. They come because they've heard about what's happened to Job. And they see him from afar. And they don't even recognize him. And they're so overcome with, with grief in seeing him that they, they weep. They, they weep aloud. And then they, they sit with him for seven days, for one week. They sat with him in silence, with no words being spoken, because there are no words that can bring comfort, just to be present and to support him. 
And so they come and, and they minister in a wonderful way in chapter 2. But in chapter 3, they start to open their mouths. And beginning with chapter 3 through verse 37, they were anything but a comfort to Jill. They analyzed and hypothesized and offered theories and explanations as to why Job was suffering, and they just heaped guilt onto his misery and pain. They said, God has to be judging you. What have you done, Job? Come clean. And Job, in chapter 16, verse 2, he says, you are terrible comforters, every single one of you. You know, as the old saying goes, you know, who needs enemies when you've got friends like this? And in, at the end of the, the book, in chapter 42, God confronts them and He rebukes them because they've misrepresented Him and they, they have mistreated Job. And yes, Job voiced his own complaints, his own frustration. He vented his anger and disappointment and bitterness. And some say he even came right up to the line a blasphemy, especially in uh, chapters uh, 9 and uh, chapter 19. And God, God could handle his venting. And God can handle our venting. But as we try to make sense of what God is saying through the book of Job, I have uh, several observations I want to, to share with you this morning. Number one, observation number one, Job is not primarily dealing with the problem of pain. It's true, most of the chapters deal with, with suffering and dissect it, but really the book of Job is about faith in its starkest form. You see, chapters 1 and 2 make it very clear, God is not the one on trial here. Job is the one on trial. The point is not suffering. Where is God when it hurts? The point is faith. Where is Job when it hurts? See, our faith matters. The choices we make matter. They matter to us. They matter to our destiny. But they all also matter to God. You see, God put himself on the line with Job in much the same way he put himself on the line with Adam. Will he choose for me or will he choose against me? And from God's point of view, that has been the central question of history, beginning with Adam and Eve and, and running through Job and touching every man and woman who has ever lived. Job is about faith that really counts with God. Because when our faith is put to the test, God cares how we respond. So that's observation number one. Number two, God doesn't care so much about being analyzed Mainly, he wants to be loved. We have a passionate God yearning for the love of his people, hungry for our love. That's the kind of relationship he wants. And we think of God in intellectual terms. We analyze him and scrutinize him, and we put all kinds of doctrinal labels on him. And all of that is well and good and important but it, it can make us feel distant from God and make God feel distant from us. And we can wind up approaching him as an object to be examined rather than a personal being to be loved, to be related to. 
we lose sight of the passionate relationship God desires with us. You know, the people that related to God best, I'm thinking in the Old Testament now, Abraham, Moses, David, they treated God, they approached God with a striking familiarity. They talked to God as if he were uh, sitting in a chair next to them, as you might talk to a counselor or a boss or, or a parent or a spouse. I think many of the feelings of disappointment we harbor toward God can be traced back to a break in that relationship. God doesn't care so much to be analyzed. Mainly, He wants to be loved. And then observation number three, Job looked ahead and was reminded of God's promise. Chapter 19, verse 23. It's an amazing statement from Job. Oh, that my words were recorded, that they were written on a scroll, that they were inscribed with an iron tool on lead or engraved in rock forever. I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end He will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see Him with my own eyes. I and not another. How my heart yearns within me. He was reminded of God's promise that in the end it will all be made right. And that spurred him on. You know, looking ahead gave him hope. And C.S. Lewis has written about hope in his book, Mere Christianity. Hope is one of the theological virtues. This means that a continual looking forward to the eternal world is not, as some modern people think, a form of escapism or wishful thinking, but one of the things a Christian is meant to do. It does not mean that we are to leave the present life as it is. He goes on, if you read history, you will find that Christians who did the most for the present world were just those who thought most about the next. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become ineffective in this. Aim at heaven and you get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you get neither. End of quote. You see, th this world is not our home. We're just passing through. And we long for fairness and righteousness to prevail. That's what Job was longing for. And that will be a part of our eternal home. And then a fourth observation, one final observation as we close. In the Old Testament, one of God's favorites, Job, suffered terrible injustice and unfairness. In the New Testament, God's own Son, Jesus Christ, suffered even more. And when Jesus walked this earth, He reacted to, to life's unfairness much like anyone else would. When he met a sick person, uh, he was deeply moved with compassion. And he didn't dish out lectures on accepting your, your lot in life. He healed those who came to him. And when his, his friend Lazarus died, he wept. And when Jesus himself faced suffering, he, he recoiled from it. You might remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, 
You know, three, three times he said, if there's any other way, if there's any other, if there's any other way other than the cross, other than dying. And God responded to the questions of unfairness, not so much with words, because we wouldn't comprehend it anyway, but with a visit. He came to live among us. And Jesus offers flesh and blood proof of how God feels about unfairness. He answered any lurking questions about the goodness of God. He suffered and died for us on the cross. And when you meet Jesus Christ in a personal encounter, you'll never look at life in the same way. He invites you to bring your troubles and disappointments and your hurts and your pain to Him today. To look into His face, as it were, and let Him envelop you with His love and His peace. And trust Him. Worship Him as you never have before. You'll recall that, that God spoke to Job in a whirlwind. It actually, he, he started speaking in chapter 38 all the way through the end of chapter 41. A small cloud that developed into a full-fledged storm and His voice boomed out like none other. And God doesn't answer question number one about Job's predicament. But Job no longer needed answers because he had encountered the living God. There's a song that says, when answers aren't enough, he is there. And Job says, my ears had heard of you, but now, now my eyes have seen you. And that was enough. And the blast from the storm flattens Job and he repents in dust and ashes, and every trace of, of disappointment is swept away. And we read deeper into chapter 42 that God blessed him even more in the second half of, of his life than he did in the first half. But look at, at chapter 42, this last chapter. We end where we began in, in chapter 1, and that's with Job worshiping God in humility. Now look at, look at verse 1, chapter 42. Then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. No plan of yours can be thwarted. You ask, who is this that obscures my counsel without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now, and I will speak. I will question you, and you shall answer me. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. When suffering comes, when disappointment comes, when testing comes, humble yourself and worship God. Have you humbled yourself? Maybe you've been going through some terrible disappointment or some trial or, or some suffering, and, and you've pretty much been righteous through it all. But, but is there some confession you need to make? Maybe some pride or fear or anger. And Job says, I had heard about you. In other words, I had knowledge about you. I had this head knowledge. But now my eyes have seen you. There's this encounter. 
There's another chorus that says, Open the eyes of my heart, Lord, that I might see you. I think that's what Job experienced. And when you have that kind of encounter with the living God, you worship Him. You love Him. You trust Him. And when you worship God, everything changes. Your perspective is transformed. Your attitudes are transformed. Your actions are transformed. Your life is transformed. Matt Redman wrote a song, basically lifted that song out of the book of Job. Just as we close, I want to share some of those lyrics. Blessed be your name when I'm found in the desert place. When I walk through the wilderness, blessed be your name. Blessed be your name on the road marked with suffering. Though there's pain in the offering, blessed be your name. Oh, you give and take away. You give and take away. My heart will choose to say, it's a choice. My heart will choose to say, blessed be your name. Every blessing you pour out, I'll turn back to praise. And when the darkness closes in, Lord, still I will say, blessed be your name. When disappointment comes, when suffering comes, humble yourself and worship God. Let's pray together. Father God, we we come and we thank you that you are the living God. You are the the living God. And you've called us into relationship with yourself through Jesus. You know us by name. You know our address. You know all that we're going through. And you've promised that you you will be there for us. You will walk through it with us. And Father, some have been going through testing, and it's been hard been really hard, maybe right in the middle of it. Father God, I I pray for your sustaining grace, your sustaining strength. I pray, Father, for incredible trust to look to you. Father, when we do look to you, when we look into your face, and when we, we see your character, it does transform us. As we look to the past and how you brought us through, great, great is your faithfulness. You are good and great and wise and loving. And we worship you. And we look to you to guide us and to lead us through because we trust your heart and we trust your hand. You are a good, good father. You never give bad gifts to those who ask. And so, Father, I pray for those going through struggle that you would would give them everything they need to persevere. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
as we come uh, to the close of the, the service, one thing we are missing is the altar down here by the organ and the, the prayer time that takes place those Sundays where we're worshiping without restrictions. But our prayer team is not restricted. They are active these days. And so if you have a prayer need, maybe you're going through a time of testing right now. There, there's, there's a big need in your life. Uh, you can reach them. All you need to do is uh, address uh, the email to qlbcprayer at gmail.com. qlbcprayer at gmail.com. And you will be prayed for. And you'll be prayed over. Now I also want to say as we close, maybe you've listened to this message and you say, yeah, I had heard about him, God, Jesus Christ. I, I knew something about him, had some knowledge, but I'm not sure I've had that heart encounter, that deep, intimate, personal encounter with Jesus Christ, where I trusted him as my Savior, my forgiver, my Lord, my friend. And maybe you have some questions. One of the pastors would love to, to have a conversation with you. You can just text the word faith to the number on the screen, 209-257-8768, and we'll be in touch and have that conversation. No pressure, just a wonderful conversation together about what that means to put your trust in Jesus. Let's pray together. And may the Lord bless you and protect you. May the Lord smile on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord show you his favor and give you his peace. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much for worshiping with us. Have a wonderful day.